0: anew, Lord Jesus, and alive. Father, we pray your blessing as we just come to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So everybody doing all right? Good. Great. Superb. Marvelous. That's good. That's good. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 is where we'll be tonight. And as we uh, as we take a look at it, it's easy for us. It's easy for us when we uh, study Jeremiah and as we come into these things to uh, forget the context of what's going on. So in order for us to get the context in chapter 31, I want you to, to look at verse 15, chapter 31, verse 15. And this will give us that con- the, the, the context of what's going on. Maybe you remember this verse from when we went through Matthew. It says, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rama, this scripture is applied to the massacre of the innocent. We talk about Herod when he went into Bethlehem, the, the dark side of the Christmas story. And he, and he slaughtered everyone two years and younger in Bethlehem. Matthew applies it to that. But the immediate context of what Jeremiah is talking about. Ramah was the town that the Babylonians took all the captives to. To line them up. To chain them up. And to march them to Babylon. And Jeremiah. in the concept of what Jeremiah is going to give us in chapter 31. And he gives us so many incredible promises. It's, it's almost unfathomable what God is going to lay out. His people and for us tonight, but we have to have the context. Don't lose sight of the fact, Jeremiah 29, 30, and 31, the three highest points in the book of Jeremiah are at the lowest point in the history of Israel. They're at the bottom. Everything's gone. Moms and dads are weeping because their children are lost. they lost in the battle, died in the siege. I mean, there's a hundred different ways they lost their children. A hundred different ways they lost family members. We know in the earlier captivity, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all taken. They were just stripped from their families and, and taken in at that time. So we know that it's a low time and a hard time. But as we look at Jeremiah chapter 31, God is going to give to the nation at that time through the prophet Jeremiah. As Jeremiah writes this letter, as he has his prophecy, and literally we're going to see... This is like a dream, a vision that God gives him that comforts Jeremiah. He's going to give them nine promises. And I want you to hold on to these nine promises that we're going to go through. Because each one of these nine promises is a promise that will bring comfort in the middle of the storm, in the lowest point, in the bottom, when you got nowhere to look but up. Each one of these promises is a promise that will bring comfort. Now we can choose, we see the context in verse 15. The final part of verse 15, we'll get to it when we get there. But they say, refusing to be comforted for children because they are no more. There's a time when we can reach uh, a level of despair that we refuse the comfort. It doesn't mean that God's comfort's not there. It just means it's possible for us to refuse that comfort. To push that comfort away. Maybe some of us have experienced that in our own lives. Dealing with people that are going through hard times. And trying to comfort them. Maybe not with words. But just trying to do something to bring comfort. And have that comfort pushed away. Because they're just not at a place where they can receive it. Well that's possible for us to reach that point. But if we'll hold on to these nine promises. And receive the comfort that God has. Even in the worst possible things. God's comfort is there for us. It says in verse 1, At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now, don't lose context. Where are they at? They're in chains. They're going to Babylon. Everything's gone. Everything's stripped. Everything's lost. They feel like God didn't keep their promise. But we know, because we read the first 30 chapters of jeremiah how many times god told them this was coming if they wouldn't repent right so they find themselves in this position and what's god say to them at the same time, all this stuff is going on all this heartache i will be the god of all the families of israel and they will be my people even in this god is saying as you go into captivity uh, i you're still my people how many times you should do a search in the scripture how many times god says his desire is for him to be your god and you to be his people Think about that phrase. They will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. How many times we read that in the pages of scripture? Over and over and over from the beginning of the promises way back in the book of Genesis. That's what God was saying. Two things. I want you to be my people and I want to be your God. And the cool thing about each of those promises are those are promises that God does. Promises that he remains faithful to. No matter what we do. So thus says the Lord. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And Israel when I went to give him rest. He's saying. He's making a comparison. Listen to the comparison. The people who survived the sword. That's the ones who have survived the siege of Babylon. The conquering of Babylon. Found grace in the wilderness. Now that is a picture of God being with the nation through the exodus. And he's saying, just like I was with them back then, I'm with you now. Just like I fulfilled my promises in the past, I fulfill my promises now. What's the point? Where is he headed to for Israel when I want to give him rest? God's design, God's plan for them is to give them rest. They can't have rest in idolatry. They can't have rest in in the things that their life is caught up about. So God will do a work in their life to bring them to a place where they can at least have the opportunity for rest. Remember what he said in Jeremiah 29, right? I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts that are good, not evil, to bring a future and a hope, to prosper. And this is still God's plan. Even though all around them, they're in chain, they're going into slavery, things don't look so good. God says, I'm here, just like I was with you in the exodus. I'm with you now. I haven't forsaken you. Same promises he gives us. And the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, this is Jeremiah, the Lord has appeared to me literally of old or in the past saying, listen, I have loved you with an everlasting love. When does everlasting love stop? Yeah, it doesn't. It can't. It can't. It's kind of like everlasting life. Everlasting life can't have a, Ending point. Otherwise it's not everlasting. He says this is everlasting love. Now. Please keep in mind. These are some of the issues that I have with a, a type of theology. Um, replacement theology that says that the church has. Taken the place of Israel. And that's not true. The Lord says here speaking to Israel. I have loved you how everlasting love. The everlasting covenant. He goes beyond that and he says, Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. And literally, that word loving kindness can can be literally translated as covenant faithfulness. It, it, it's God saying, I've drawn you, I, I've got a plan for you, I have a purpose for you, and I'm gonna make it happen. I'm gonna find a way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give every opportunity, I'm gonna be faithful. To the promises that I give you. And that's important for us to hold on to. Because he's about to give us nine. He says. Again I will build you. And you will be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel. And you shall be adorned with your tambourines. And shall go forth in the dances. Of those who rejoice. I've had a few opportunities. To be a part of services. with Within messianic fellowships. And I don't know if there's very many people here. Who have had that opportunity. But. Worship in a Messianic fellowship is wild. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what Pentecostal background you think you have. If you have not been in a Messianic fellowship, when they sing and praise and people jump up everywhere with tambourines and they start their dance and they start doing their thing, it's not. It's cultural. It's how they praise. It's how they worship. It's how they they glorify the Lord. David danced with all his might before the Lord, right? So we see that the same thing coming for them. He's saying here, listen, today as they're receiving this in Ramah, they're weeping and crying and everything's lost. But God says, I'm going to rebuild you. And I'm going to give you back the tambourine. And you're going to want to dance again. This is not the end. It's not the last chapter. It's not the final part. He says, you shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. And the planters will plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there will be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim. Arise and let us go to Zion to the Lord our God. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Mount Ephraim is the northern kingdom. Judah, who Jeremiah is speaking to, is the southern kingdom. Northern Kingdom's already been in captivity for 150 years to a vile people called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. Now the Lord, as the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom are united in bondage to a common enemy, separated by 150 years, but nonetheless united in bondage, as they come together, the Lord says, listen, there will be a day when the watchman will cry from Mount Ephraim. When the kingdom that was divided will be whole. When when once again there will be a nation bound together. And that arise and let us go to Zion is an invitation to worship. An invitation to worship. And that leads us to the first of nine promises. Nine reasons that we can be comforted in the midst of our mourning and suffering. And the challenge to us is to learn it's okay to mourn, but it's not okay to murmur. Mourning is all right, we can mourn. Murmuring against the Lord is not. That's a problem. It's a problem the children of Israel always had. This is the first of the promises that worship will bring comfort. Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief. of the nations proclaim give praise and say oh lord save your people the first promise that he lays out for him is this promise the promise that comfort will come in the midst of all this chaos and the craziness that you're feeling comfort will come through worship he's telling them who are in chains who are going into captivity sing with gladness for jacob And then he says, give praise and say. In verse 12, he's going to call them to sing from the height of Zion. He's laying out for us this promise. The promise is that in worship, when we will come before the Lord in worship, we can receive comfort. Now, probably if we gave opportunity for testimony, there there are many stories in here of how comfort was felt in times of worship when we've been in Difficult places. There are times when my heart aches. When my heart is overwhelmed. I'll snatch up a guitar and end up in the middle of no place. Somewhere where nobody can find me. Sit in the back of my truck and strum a few songs. And in no time. The, the mourning inside of me begins to turn to joy. As I turn my attention from my problem. To praising the Lord. The greatest. Example of this I have ever seen, I've shared with you before. A young man who played football for me for four years was in a motorcycle accident. It was a freak thing. They're on dirt bikes, riding up the, the road to the house. He decided to split between two, two other bikes, and they bumped their bars, and it caused him to hit a curb. And he flew over the bars of the motorcycle and hit his chest on a big boulder rock that was ornament in this in this fellow's front yard and shattered his chest and put several bone fragments through his heart and there was nothing they could do for him they loaded him up in a helicopter they took him to the hospital and I got down to the hospital while they were working on him and I was together with the family When the doc came in, the first thing they do is they move you to a a private room. That's never good. they move you to a private room, that means they don't want everyone to hear the chaos that's about to break out when they give you the bad news. And then they came in a little while later and they said, I'm sorry, there's nothing we could do. And I watched that boy's dad stand up and lift both arms and say, I praise you, Lord. For my son. I don't understand why you took him. But I praise you anyway. Here I'm trying to search for some words. I'm going to share. Try to give wisdom to the family. When he did that. It was pretty much. They didn't need to hear nothing from me. He just gave the greatest proclamation. Of fulfilling this promise. That Jeremiah is talking about. Sing. Praise God. Even in the midst of it all. And that can begin to bring the comfort that you need. The second promise is a promise to answer their prayer. He goes on and says, <clears throat> Not only, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel, but in verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. The Lord says, Listen, I'm going to be faithful to the, keep the promise. I'm gonna, I promise I will answer your prayers. How long is it going to be? Seventy years. It doesn't mean God's not going to answer. God doesn't always answer the way we want. We, we have this thing, you know, I want what I want, and I want it now. I kind of like that immediate gratification, you know. Oh, It's mine. But God doesn't often work that way. Right. The Lord says, here is the second promise. I will answer your prayer. By the way, no is an answer too. But that's not the answer in this case. The answer in this case is I'll bring you back. I still have a plan for you. I'm still going to take care of you. I'm going to gather you from the ends of the earth. Now when we look at this, keep in mind, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, at the end of the 70 years, the Lord brings those in Babylon out of captivity. Now not all who are in Babylon come out. Some of them like it in Babylon, they stay. Not all return to the land. But then the Lord goes on and gives them this other promise. I will gather you from the corners of the earth. When were they sent there? Not at this time. They're sent to the four corners of the earth at the destruction of of Jerusalem due to the rejection of their Messiah. And the Lord scatters them and he promises way back here before that scattering ever takes place. Before that prayer has ever been offered, he says, I will bring you back. From the four corners of the earth. I'm not done. I'm not finished. I haven't written you off. He says the same thing to us. I'm not finished with you. I haven't written you off. If I have begun a good work in you. What's he promise? He's going to finish it. Just most of the the time. All the time. What if he's begun a good work in. Someone you've been praying for. And that doesn't seem to go anywhere. Is he still going to finish the work he started? That's what he said he would do. Another way that we find comfort in the midst of the storm is holding on to the promise that he will answer our prayer. I will bring you home again. The third promise is a promise of preservation. Look at the next part of the verse. Among them the blind and the lame... The woman with child and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return. The people you would never think are going to make it. The Lord says they're going to make it. You would say, oh, what's going to happen to the blind? They're all in chains. What's going to happen to the lame? What's going to happen to the, to the, the women with their children? What's going to happen with the ones who are pregnant getting ready to give birth? The Lord says, I'm going to preserve you. When I bring you back, you're all coming, the blind and the lame, the woman with her small child and the pregnant woman alike. I will preserve you. I will preserve you. I'll keep you. And he will keep the nation of Israel throughout this time. God promises that he will preserve them. Just like he promises to preserve us. Does he say that he's going to bring that storm so radically that it utterly wipes us off of the face of the earth? No, he does not say that. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen, "No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man." And with the struggle you face, what does he give? He gives a way out. He gives a way out. Why? That you may be able to bear it. What's that promise say? I will preserve you. I won't give you more than you can handle. And every one of us at one time or another has said, Lord, you really think a lot more of me than I think of myself. Because I promise I can't handle this. But the Lord knows. The third promise that he gives us is that promise of preservation. Then he gives us the fourth promise. The fourth promise we see in verse 9. They shall come with weeping and with supplication, and I will lead them. The promise of a return. That is the attitude or the idea of the return of the prodigal son. The return, the repentance, the change of direction. The fact that they're going to come back. They go out weeping, but the Lord says you're going to come back weeping because you're going to recognize what you've lost. Just like the prodigal son in the pig. that's When he got to the pig's pen and he was thinking about how good the slop looked and he just wanted to dive in and eat. He realized things were better with dad. And then what did he do? He repented. How do we know he repented? He changed his direction, right? He turned 180 degrees and he went home. And that's what the Lord is talking about here. The promise of a return. The promise that at any moment, at any time, any time we're willing... We can go back. We can always go back into that right relationship with God. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. And what's the Lord say? I will lead them. It's godly sorrow that produces repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. So as we look at what the scripture lays out for us, he's saying, listen, here's that fourth promise. The fourth promise is, I'm going to continue to work in your life to help you change your direction. and get." Anybody ever pray for a prodigal son? Anybody ever have somebody who's, who's wandering, who's out there doing something out there, you know, in the wind, as they say? And the Lord says, this is his fourth promise in the storm. I'll never stop working in their life. With supplications by prayer, I will lead them. Don't ever stop praying. Ever. I share often Kathy prayed for her sister for 10 years. At the end of 10 years, her sister is also a sister in the Lord. Might be the only one. So she prays for the others. And she prays and she prays you learned a long time ago praying for me you just keep praying stay on your knees God will not stop he will not sleep he does not slumber he has not forgotten he hasn't lost track he promises repentance a return a change of direction He promises, the fourth promise, the promise of return. They will come back weeping and with supplication I will lead them. Then we have the next promise. The next promise is a promise of guidance. Listen, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of water in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. What's that next promise? That fifth promise is a promise of guidance. God says, I'm going to guide them. I'll lead them beside, what did the psalmist say? Still waters. I love that picture. Lord can lead me beside still waters anytime he wants to. What's he say here? He says here, I will cause them to walk by rivers of water. What's the important thing of that? What is the most important thing you're going to need traveling through the desert? Water. The Lord says, I'm going to lead you by rivers of water. I'm going to meet your every need along the way. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to direct you. I often think of a time in Abraham's life when Abraham is probably doing one of the one of the most difficult things he ever had to do, and that was give up a son that he loved. You remember Ishmael? I'm not sure how much Abraham cared for Hagar, but Ishmael was important to him. What's well, his son? And not, that's his son. His son's, you know, 16 years old perhaps at this, at this time in his life. And the Lord says to him, you need to turn Ishmael loose. And Hagar too. And so Abraham put him in the hands of God. He gave him one skin of water. It's the best thing Abraham could do for his son. Scripture says, make no provision for the flesh. And Ishmael and Hagar are a model, a picture of the flesh, aren't they? In the Scripture, sure. So the model holds true. But what's more than that? God said to Abraham, "Give me Ishmael; I'll take care of him." Abraham could have gave him a humongous flock, all the camels he needed, all kind of men to walk with him and keep him safe. But who would Ishmael have learned to trust? Dad, or the camels? But because Abraham gave him one skin of water, who did he learn to trust? God. And when they ran out of water and there was nothing and Hagar lays the child under a bush and goes and lays down and begins to weep because they're going to die and she doesn't want to see him die. Did the Lord forget about him? He was right there. Bringing him the God who sees, she called him. Bringing him to what? The water that they need. What did God promise them? I'll guide them. You give Ishmael to me. I'll take care of him. That's hard to do with our kids, isn't it? That's hard. It's hard to let them go, take your hands off, and allow God to do what God wants to do in their life. But what do I know about God's plans for my children? Are they good or evil? To do what? To prosper or to destroy? prosper to give them a future and a hope the next promise that the lord says is a promise to guide then he talks in uh, at the end of verse 9 about the promise of forgiveness for i am a father to israel and ephraim is my firstborn well, i love how god does that when he's speaking about israel here i believe he's talking about both kingdoms brought together but he emphasizes Ephraim, the northern kingdom that's already in captivity. Remember, I told you 150 years earlier, they're already there. God is alluding to what we're going to read a little bit more about this forgiveness in verse 21. Is this idea that, hey, they're my children. I'm their father. That's what a dad does. A dad forgives his kids. He says, Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, was Ephraim his firstborn? No. But Ephraim right now, at this point, as they're going into captivity, Ephraim becomes, if you will, like that apple in his eye, that prodigal son who is about to be reunited with his brothers in captivity and eventually will return. And so he's he's looking at that. Oh, I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. He's alluding to the promise of forgiveness. We'll see that a little more fully a little bit later. So hold on to that one. We'll come back to it. He also says in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Promise number seven. The promise of the good shepherd. He says, I'm going I'm to shepherd my people. I'm going to gather them together like a flock. I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to keep them as a shepherd. The fulfillment of the good shepherd. Ultimately is a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. As he comes and said. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd does what? Gives his life for the sheep. So here he says. This promise. This next promise to help us in the storm. That he is the good shepherd. And what do we know about the Lord as our shepherd? Psalm 23 right? The Lord is my shepherd. How's it start? I shall not. What? That's provision, right? He gives us everything I need. And as we work our way through the 23rd Psalm, we realize all these promises, how these promises affect us, the promise of the good shepherd. Read the 23rd Psalm. Read the 23rd Psalm when you're down. How many times has the 23rd Psalm been shared at a funeral service? A bazillion. Because it's the promise of God to be a shepherd for his people. The Lord is my shepherd. And that's the idea that he brings here. Then in verse 11, he gives us the next promise. Promise number 8. The promise to redeem and ransom. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. For the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. God's promise of redemption, of ransom and redemption. Ransom simply is the, the word for the price. And redemption is the word for the act. He paid the ransom. The soul that sins shall what? Die. Every one of us owe that debt. He paid it. He paid our ransom. And has redeemed us. And the idea of redemption is the idea we studied in the book of Ruth on Wednesday nights. It's an idea. It's a family word. Redemption is a family word. The word for redemption is is goel. It's the kinsman redeemer. It's the idea, the purpose, the plan behind God coming in the flesh in the first place. He had to be kin He had to be kin. He had to wear flesh like us. He had to be the second Adam. What makes him the second Adam? The first Adam was created with what? Without a sin nature. And he fell. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, was born without a sin nature. And he didn't fail. God in the flesh. He paid the price. By the first Adam, we've all been poisoned. By the second Adam, we're all set free. By the first Adam, we're all taken in bondage. By the second Adam, He put us loose. He made us free. And whom the Son sets free. Well, they're free indeed. They're free indeed. And that's the idea of redemption and ransom. That promise that He will pay what is necessary to redeem. To put us in that right relationship with god and as we go through and we're going to see this section as as the praise begins to develop spontaneously it begins to flow out of these eight promises ninth promise is coming but as we look at it what i want you to understand is in this chapter jeremiah has used every single every single hebrew word for grief Every word that is possible for him to use for grief and or suffering in the Hebrew, he uses in this chapter. And in the midst of all that, he lays out these promises and says, hey, there is hope. There's hope. Hope. There's always hope. Look what he says in verse 13. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance. And the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning to joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. Isn't that the very promise that God gave in Isaiah 61? I will give them the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's a promise of the Messiah. The Messiah would come and turn their mourning into joy. For that morning, that period of suffering, that's just for the night. But joy comes in the morning. That joy comes in the morning. And that's the idea that he gives here. What does it mean? Listen, don't miss this. It means that suffering is temporary. Don't ever lose sight of that. The suffering, the hardship, the difficult times are temporary. Even if they last your entire life, it's temporary. Because the scripture said, Paul wrote, I do not consider it worthy to be compared the suffering of this present life with what we will have in glory with Jesus. Not worthy to be compared. Paul's like, I don't care how bad it is here. Keep your eyes on heaven because it's so much better there. And it's worth it. It's worth it. To arrive, to finish your race. He says, I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. You hear that word dripping with the the provision of God? Do you hear what he said? I will satiate the soul of the priest with abundance. How much more could he say about pouring out blessing and pouring out promises and pouring out all this stuff in the life of his people? I will satiate. That's, that's the field the overflowing, the dripping and goozing and oozing. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. It's a big mess. And that's what the Lord is saying. I will satiate and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Then comes the context. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. And refusing to be comforted for her children. Because they are no more. But. Thus says the Lord. Listen. Refrain your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded. Says the Lord. How many times in life have we felt like. Nobody really knows what I'm going through or what's going on. God doesn't even understand maybe my suffering or whatever. The Lord says, listen, no matter what's going on, whatever's happening, don't weep, don't cry, don't lose heart. You will be rewarded. Be faithful. Be faithful. And God says, I'll be with you. You will be rewarded. And then he says, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's a time that that's the only thing my mom and Kathy and several other people in my life had to hold on to. They will come back from the land of the enemy. Some people stay there a long time. I stayed there 13 years. But God's promise is, don't weep, don't cry, be faithful. They will come back. Pray. With supplication. Lift them up. Make your request known to God. And God is able to do abundantly beyond what we can ask or imagine. Listen. They will come back. From the land of the, the enemy. There is hope in your future. Says the Lord. And this chapter is dripping with promises. Don't lose the context. They had lost it all. In chains. Going into slavery. But what is God's promise? You have a future. There is a plan. You will return from the land of the enemy. This is not the final chapter. It never is. Good or bad, this is not the final chapter. There is more to be written. He says, there is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. God says to the parents who are weeping, hey, you're going to be here 70 years, but your kids, they're going to come home. They're going to come back. They're going to be back in the land, back where they should be. In verse 18, we have a, that insight. Remember I told you the promise of forgiveness. He's going to give us a picture of repentance right here. In verse 18, he says, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. This is those who have already been into captivity 150 years earlier. <coughs> he says, you have ch- chastised me, and I was chastised. The first part of repentance, the first demand of repentance is a change of direction. So look at the heart of, of Ephraim. You have chastised me and I was chastised. Like an untrained bull. So restore me and I will return. For you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented. Ephraim as he's calling out for that forgiveness. a forgiveness. Remember that it was alluded to earlier. That promise of forgiveness. Here God says. I hear the cries of Ephraim. He says he was chastised. That he was He was in a place where God was bringing his correction in Ephraim's life. And as he's bringing his correction in Ephraim's life, the first thing that he does is he changes his direction. Surely after my turning, I repented. I turned around. As the Lord corrected me, I turned around. After I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated. The second thing that we see... In repentance, is that uh, repentance includes recognition of sin. Listen, he says here, I was like an untrained bull, so restore me. After my turning, my turning away from you, I repented, changed my direction, and come back. He recognizes his sin. And then, thirdly, it includes remorse. I was ashamed and humiliated. That's, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Because I bore the reproach of my youth. Now listen to God's response in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. See, God, even in the midst of his correction, even in the midst of trying to turn Ephraim, who was a nation that went into captivity 150 years earlier, God says, I remember him still. I never lost sight of him. I never gave up on him. I never turned my eyes from. Therefore, listen, my heart yearns for him. That's God speaking. Can you imagine God's heart yearning for someone? Well, it's the same thing we studied today when we looked at the parables and we saw the parable of the treasure, the parable of 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 the pearl of great price. Because in those parables, I see the treasure. The treasure is those whom Jesus Christ redeemed. He is the one who purchased the field, the world. He is the one who paid that purchase price to gather them together. For the joy set before him, it says, he paid it all. And here he says of Ephraim, man of Ephraim, therefore my heart yearns for him. It's amazing to me to consider the concept that almighty God, who is utterly and totally complete in himself, needs, yearns for you and I, for Ephraim, his son, for his people. There's something in that 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 brings even greater completion or restoration to God. It's an incredible concept, an incredible thought. And so he says, I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. That attitude is the promise of forgiveness. Then in verse 21, we see some more information on the promise of guiding. Remember we saw he'll lead them beside the rivers of waters. Then he says in verse 21, set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these, your cities. What God is saying is, I have booked a round trip passage to Babylon. As you go into Babylon, you set up signs because you're coming back. This is not a one-way trip. It's a round trip. You're going and then you're going to return. And then in verse 22, you have something that's pretty incredible. In verse 22, as we take a look at it, and it's by far not without controversy. But listen to what verse 22 says. How long will you gad about, O you backsliding, daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Interesting. Out of nowhere this, this verse comes. Here's a few things that we do know. For the Lord has created. That's the word bar. That means to create from nothing. So when it says the Lord has created a new thing. It's something that has never happened before. This is something that has never happened. And then there's a little bit of trouble with some of the translation. It's not quite as clear as it could be. Where it says a woman shall encompass a man. Literally it is a woman shall encompass the mighty one. That shine a little light. When shall a woman encompass the mighty one? It's actually the very same word used in Isaiah. Speaking of a child is born. A son is given. And you will call his name mighty. Counselor. Wonderful. Mighty Mighty God. Prince of Peace. As we look at the, that scripture. The very same word used here in terms of this. <clears throat> Many people believe Jeremiah has given insight right here. As God gives a promise to the return. A promise of redemption. A promise of ransoming all. The promise of forgiveness and of guidance. And then he says, here's what I'm going to do. Even though you're a backsliding daughter. He's talking about the nation of Israel. I'm going to do a new thing. God's going to come in the flesh. When was he ever encompassed by a woman? In the womb of Mary. It's an illusion to the virgin birth that God lays out for us. A new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. It's interesting. Verse 23, he goes on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. They shall again use this speech in a land of Judah and in its cities when I bring you back to their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness. He says, hey, they're going to they're be once again uttering the blessing about this place. Keep in mind the context. The people are weeping and crying. They've lost it all. Everything's gone. It's all it's over. It's no hope. And God's given them these promises to tell them there is hope. Listen, here's the ninth promise, and that's the promise of provision. One of the names of God is Yahweh Yireh, means the Lord my provider. Here he says in verse 24. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together. Farmers and those going out with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul. And I have replenished every sorrowful soul. God says I will be your provider. Everything you need God will give you. If he doesn't give it to you what does it mean? I didn't need it. Everything we need. He will be our ultimate provider. And then this section, as we close tonight, this section, he wraps it up right here. In verse 26, listen, he says, After this I awoke, and I looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. What does that mean? Listen. None... Of these, or very few of these promises of God were realities for Jeremiah. They're just promises. He had to receive them by faith, not by sight. He didn't see them. You and I, we know the history. I know how this all worked, I know how every one of these promises was fulfilled. But Jeremiah doesn't know. He said, I woke up and I looked around. He thought maybe while he was seeing this vision and dreaming this dream that God had turned everything around and everything was right. And he woke up and he looked and there was Jerusalem still burning. And there in the streets are still the bodies. And a little ways off, a few miles outside of Jerusalem and out on the outskirts, very outskirts of Bethlehem, there's wheat, the sound of weeping coming. Jeremiah realizes his world hasn't changed these were only promises given during the storm but they revived Jeremiah after he awoke and he looked around and he realized yep I'm still here he said my sleep was sweet to me how long it been since his sleep was sweet to him What brought that sweetness of sleep was that concept of understanding the promises of God. They're true every single day. We haven't even got to the best part of Jeremiah 31. The new covenant's coming. We have to wait till next week for that. But the idea that these are the promises that God is laying out. These are the ideas. That's the thing that God is saying. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't lost sight of you. Even in the midst of utter chaos and total loss of, of anything you can imagine. God says you can still hold on to these things. You can still practice praise. You can still experience repentance and the return. You can still experience provision of God. You can still experience every one of these things we've talked about. Because no matter what's going on, God is Always faithful. Amen. We're going to close out tonight with a time of prayer. And I just invite you. We're just going to seek the Lord. And in a time of open prayer. If the Lord lays prayer on your heart. I, I invite you to pray along with us. If he doesn't. He doesn't. If, if the Lord gives you an utterance. And you feel like uh, the spirit has moved in your heart. And given you the gift of tongues. I invite you to share it. If someone has a gift of interpretation. I would invite them to stand up and bring the interpretation. Tonight. If we if we share and we speak and there's no interpretation, the scripture says, keep silent in the church. So we'll, we'll keep silent on that part and we'll look forward to that, anything that the Lord has for us. Word of knowledge, word of prophecy. I don't know, whatever God has. But I want God's people just to be open to His move. And maybe it's just a time for us to be still and know that He is God. That's okay too. But I'd encourage you as we... As we have this time, this quiet time before the Lord, just seek him. Just seek him for what he has or what he wants for, for tonight. And, and again, if the Lord lays a, a, a care on your heart that you want to lift in prayer, I want to invite you to pray along with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time and opportunity to come into your presence. God, as we come into that place, God, I thank you so much for your promises. I thank you for the practical...